0: The following episode of the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, includes advertising provided by our network GCN. If you'd like to subscribe to an ad-free version of the program, plus the exclusive After the Paracast podcast, please visit www.theparacast.plus. That's P-L-U-S. Once again, that's www.theparacast.plus. The Paracast Paracast dot dot plus. Plus. You're in the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: So, quite frequently, Tim and I and our guests over the weeks have been talking about the UAP whistleblower, Dave Brush. Dave has, in the course of his discussions talked about the pentagon having secret ufo information or uap i prefer ufo i prefer flying saucers in any case he won't give us an that information that's classified but it's supposed to relate to reverse engineering crash spaceships presence of alien bodies that kind of thing now to make things even more confusing a story has come out and there's a big piece in the debrief online military and ufo related newsletter from micah hanks and mj benias where it's revealed that grush suffered from ptsd as a result of his service in afghanistan i guess he took meds for it and everything and may have been hospitalized he says now that, of course at the pentagon let him work for them and didn't allow or didn't consider that to be an impediment to having him hold his position, but it's certainly going to be used to criticize him. What do you think, Tim?
2: Oh yeah, well, definitely they'll use that to criticize him. But uh, I think that anybody that is going to go through active service in the military is going to come out of it with post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, that, that's that's probably a, a given. So for that kind of information to come out now, and face it, I mean, it's, it's being used to try to discredit him. He's like, oh, you, you know, you can't believe what this guy says, he has mental problems. I mean, that's dirty pool. But we've seen it before, we, you know, we've seen it time again. And I mean, it, it, it harks back you know, to the old jokes that people used to say about anyone who had a UFO sighting is, oh, yeah, what are, you know, what have you been drinking or what have you been smoking? So yeah, it's just uh, <laughs> it's very much like we have talked time and time again about this case. It's just more of the same that we have seen throughout UFO history just coming back and being played out all over again
1: now the one thing here we have to bear in mind here is we expect people who join the military to serve their country even in wars that may not be popular and certainly the one in afghanistan was very controversial he's putting his life on the line suffering the consequences and when he gets back home and suffers an illness we should be doing everything possible to cure him of the illness, but not let that condition hurt him for the rest of his life. I mean, that's not fair.
2: Right. Nor should it define him, which is what they're trying to do. You know, this this guy has a, a PTSD, and so you can't believe anything that, that he says. I'm sorry, but that is what is being attempted. That is the attempted stain on his character that they're wanting to use to discredit everything that he says
1: now interesting here since this was revealed and maybe you've heard otherwise tim i haven't heard much response after that article came out and after the original piece that revealed this information is it that people are rethinking how they approach him or what
2: no, I think it's more along the lines of what we had discussed earlier that um, uh, he basically had his day in the sun and that's it. I mean, even if it comes out that you know he, he went on a mass murder spree or something you know next week, um, you know for the most part, I think that uh, any of this kind of information, with the exception of people like us, you know who 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 researches kind of thing and and you know keep our attention on any new developments. I think that for the most part, it's just going to be pretty much ignored.
1: Our guest this week, Neil Story, is an adventurer, an historian, an author, in no particular order. Neil, have you been following this chatter about the UFO investigation in the U.S.?
3: I certainly have. And, you know, they say in war, the first casualty is the truth.
2: Mm.
3: And it seems very much to me that if the powers that be cannot disprove what is being said, and there is credibility given to a witness uh, with a military, particularly those with with military backgrounds, they're going to go for the man. This goes back... Over a hundred years and probably more, but certainly in my experience as a historian, you can see it during the First World War when some of the officers of the British Army that were fighting the the Great War from 1914, uh, when they started speaking out, uh, they blamed uh, their speaking out on something called neurasthenia. Uh, It's a nice way of calling. uh, It's a nice name for shell shock and shell shock was something that was understood medically right back to the time of the American Civil War in the 1860s.
1: So PTSD is a modern way of referring to shell shock?
3: Well, neurasthenia, yes, absolutely. And as I say, it was recognized and it was understood medically and very well understood with, with the pioneers in America during the Civil War. During the First World War, it was it was ignored, it was dismissed, and it took some remarkable, brave doctors, men that made a stand to say that this is a medical condition. It is not cowardice. Uh, it really does exist. But because it was an easy way to silence people, to silence stories that were coming out that were anti-war, talking about the futility of war uh, and and the waste of human life. Oh well, they must be—they must be shell shocked. They must be, be neurasthetics. and they are. That's a way of removing them from from. Often the, they get sent to specialist hospitals, and they are derided. Oh, well, it's claptrap. We can't publish his views uh, because clearly he—he he is a neurasthetic.
1: Well, hopefully we'll see where this goes. But the big thing here is that Grush needs to reveal something we didn't know with some evidence, because nothing he says now is anything that hasn't been suspected by people following the UFO enigma.
3: I think you're absolutely right. Uh, And to be honest, when I first heard this story breaking, I, I, I immediately thought of Bob Lazar, who has had all sorts of stuff thrown at him over the years when I believe he tried to, to speak out and, and just tell the truth. I I thought it was very hard, and particularly to criticise his qualifications. Well, the man had a, a very important job, uh, which you don't get with, with false... Qualifications you cannot get those kind of jobs. You, you're vetted. Uh, I'm sure in the same way in, in the American military or secret services or, or you know, government science services, uh, there are vetting processes. Your qualifications have to be scrutinised. So I, I think it's really it's really rotten. And I, I'm, I will also I'd like to add that having been a military historian now for over thirty years, uh, I've served my queen. And I've met—I guess it will be hundreds—of ex-service personnel, men and women, who actually served from the First World War up to the Gulf War, and and I have and, and Afghanistan. I have friends who suffer from PTSD. I have seen it firsthand. I have helped pick up the pieces of good men and women who are broken by it. But I've also heard it used against good people. They've got it. They fight the nightmares and the horrors that haunt them, and they fight them bravely and val- valiantly and with, with dignity. And it's really wrong to penalize them because they suffer.
1: We're going to have more with Neil and Jean and Tim. You're in the Paracast. Hey, listeners.
4: Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com.
5: Are you a business owner? Are you confused by the complexity of the tax laws? We can help. I'm Dan Pilla, and I've been helping business owners solve tax problems for over 40 years. My book, The Small Business Tax Guide, shows proven ways to avoid all the common business tax problems. Don't risk your business. Go to DanPilla.com to order your copy. That's DanPilla.com. Order now and get a free 15-minute call directly with me, a $99 value. Go to DanPilla.com. That's
6: DanPilla.com. If we've learned anything from recent news, it's that unexpected things are happening. Your gut tells you there's something very wrong going on, and all the evidence suggests that there is. Government emails are hacked. There's talk of how to fight World War III, and trade of grains and food are being disrupted. Those in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better. It's time to invest in self-reliance and emergency food storage now, more than ever. My Patriot Supply, the nation's largest emergency preparedness company, is the place you can trust. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contains tasty breakfasts, lunch, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Get at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save 25%, plus get free shipping on all their three-month emergency food kits. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com today. It's time to prepare for what's coming. MyPatriotSupply.com.
7: we'd like to hear from you
0: if you have a comment or question about the paracast send it to news at theparacast.com that's news at theparacast.com and don't forget to visit our famous paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com
1: we're talking to neil's story and we started out here referring to the ravages of war when people go to serve their country they suffer mental illness of some sort in connection, of course, with the revelation that David Grush, the UAP whistleblower, has himself suffered from PTSD. That's sad, it's unfortunate, and it's not a question of the value of the war or whether he has, should have served. We have a volunteer army in the U.S., and when you agree to serve, you've got to do your stuff. You've got to do your duty. That's where it goes. Neil, what interested you first in looking into UFOs?
3: My goodness. I think I've known about UFOs most of my life. In the UK, we had reruns of the American TV show uh, Project Blue Book, and I rather liked that. It captured an imagination. There were some good books over here. One particular one, I, I, it, was, it was almost like a children's annual but it had lots of true UFO stories in it. It's always been there, along with my fascination with ghosts, the strange, and the unexplained. It doesn't always sit well with people who consider themselves academics, but I believe that mysteries and legends and folk stories, I, I think, are part of all of our history and, and our cultural identity. So I've, lo- I've got this wonderful mix of all of the above. I, I don't really set out to prove or disprove or or take any particular stance i like investigating these stories and maybe see if we can find some grains of truth in the origin or a lot of truth along the way you know
1: (laughs) have you ever seen one
3: yes and that certainly crystallized my interest in ufos it was in the 1990s And I was in a place called North Walsham in Norfolk, my home county, the town where I grew up. It's an agricultural area. If you look at the map of England, Norfolk is the big bump on the side towards the east of Great Britain. And North Walsham is not far from the coastline in North Norfolk. Norfolk is, they say it's flat. Well, it's not. It's got lovely undulating landscape. And we want quite some high ground where you could see maybe seven or eight miles all around, including the coast where we've got Haysborough Lighthouse. It was dusk. And I was with my then partner, and we were just eating... We were actually eating a burger. Looking across the fields, you know, as you do, as the sun goes down. Great. And we'd sat there several times before. It's a super view. As we did so, a light caught my eye. Now it wasn't on the seaward side, it was coming landward and it went flying over the top of the car and it it knit up because it was dusk. It was low enough to light up our car. It was glowing, it was tic-tac shaped and it was was not pure white, it was off-white in colour and it flew across the sky at an incredible pace in seconds if not milliseconds it was over the top of some fir trees that were maybe about a mile away and it moved from left to right above the line of the fir trees i said to my partner neither of us knew what it was and i said if one of the aircraft we have a local air base raf coltishaw one of the aircraft from raf coltishaw appears any minute that's going to be something rogue in the sky and we kind of laughed and i hardly got the words out of my mouth, we'd had our laugh, but sure enough, overcomes an RAF fighter I- aircraft, whoosh, towards this tic-tac shape. The tic-tac shape stops in the centre of the trees. As the aircraft approaches, it banks to the left, and the, spher- the tic-tac object pings off at 90 degrees to the right. Absolutely incredible, upwards, and disappears. Now that probably took seconds rather than minutes. I couldn't believe it, but I was heartened that other people across the county had seen it too, and the lights over the county were reported. And when I saw that the tic tac, so-called tic tac shape, was released on on the footage. Via the you know the Pentagon had to sort of say well this has been leaked but here it is we're fessing up to it it made me feel a very happy man because we certainly weren't crazy after all those years.
2: Do you think with this sighting that uh, you just happened to be in the right place at the right time to see it? Because you said it uh, flew over your car. Do you think that it deliberately was showing itself to you? I think it was. We were purely just in the right
3: place. At the right time, we could have been walking a dog. We 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 could, you know, we could have been anywhere. It had no engagement with us whatsoever. It was gone, whoosh. We just happened to be there. I w- I would think, I it's it's hard to imagine how high up it was to cast a light on us. But it's it's. Would it be a thousand feet up? I don't know. I don't know, it seemed very, very low, but it all happened so very quickly, and it, it had flown over so very, very quickly. It was incredible.
8: Did
1: you that report is- it to any outside party?
3: No. God, no, we, we didn't. We, we just thought, what have we seen? <laughs> what have we seen? But when it hit the newspapers and the local media... Uh, we, We were perfectly happy that people had reported it. There was even a little bit, in those days, it was video footage. So somebody had actually filmed it over the city of Norwich, and it's the same thing, same shape, and it's gone. They tried to excuse it, the authorities tried to excuse it, as lights from the top of Boston Stump, which is a tall church tower in Lincolnshire across the Wash, Subsequently, MOD documents have been released which confirm that. I mean, we all doubted it. We thought it's absolute rubbish, reflections, lights, and all sorts. No way. And the MOD documents simply say, yes, this is a story that's been put out to kill off the sightings because they simply could not be explained.
1: I'm going to ask you in our next segment more about the book you're working on. But long and short, do you plan to present your own theory as to what causes the phenomenon?
3: Well, I might put together. I, I, I want to ret- I want. I, I want to chart the story of UFO sightings in the United Kingdom. I think, in presenting the evidence that that ex- exists at this time, I think there's plenty uh, of evidence without me needing to put together too many theories.
1: We'll ask you more about that. And by the way, we'll also be talking to Neil's story about a book he's working on about Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula, an illustrated biography. And we're gonna to wanna to focus on that too, because Dracula, that character has fascinated people for since the 19th century. And become part of folklore, part of pop culture. More to come with Gene Neal and Tim you're in the Podcast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit gcnlive dot com today.
10: Attention, your withdrawal has been denied by the U.S. government. Picture a world where your every purchase is monitored, tracked, and controlled by those in power to suppress the freedoms of those they see fit. Hi, my name is Jason Hansen. I'm a former CIA officer and New York Times bestselling author. And right now, I've become very focused on the impending rollout of the central bank digital currency. This is not a work of fiction. It's a terrifying reality looming on the horizon. But there is a bit of good news. Good news. I've partnered with Advantage Gold to offer you a solution. They are specialists in converting your traditional assets, like those inside an IRA or 401k, into tangible assets such as physical gold and silver. Don't allow your money to be controlled. Claim your free gold protection kit from Advantage Gold. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Call 800-900-8000.
11: USA news update. Leaders from Los Angeles and San Diego are assuring residents their cities are prepared for Hurricane Hillary. Here's San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria. While I know this storm in particular is bringing about a much concern and uncertainty, I want to reassure San Diegans uh, that their city is prepared to respond swiftly and effectively to the impacts that this storm may bring. Hillary is expected to make landfall as a tropical storm Sunday night or early Monday morning. Hawaiian officials say the death toll from the Lahaina wildfire is now up to 114. Hawaii Governor Josh Green called the deaths unspeakable and devastating. He's vowed to rebuild Lahaina. Former President Trump is reportedly planning to skip the upcoming Republican debate and instead will be interviewed by Tucker Carlson. The debate, hosted by the Republican National Committee, will air Wednesday on Fox News. Trump has previously signaled he might not take part in the debate. John
12: Schaefer, USA News. What if Extendivite really works, but you find that hard to believe and you spend precious time looking for someone to say, Just try it. I have my help today because of Extendivite, and if I did not take a leap of faith and try it, well, I would be on disability today. Take one bottle of Extendivite as suggested for 60 days to find out for yourself. No need to stop any other meds you may be on. You know by now that they are not working for you. Before the 60 days are up, I know that you will feel Extendivite working for you and will want to take another bottle. Life is too short. Get your Extendivite today. Extendivite is available in capsule or liquid form, Form for just 69.95 for a 2 month supply. To get started, call one 877 928 That's one
13: 877 928 or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with
14: Every day we take steps to keep the people we love safe, but some health risks are easy to miss. Ticks hiding in the yard can spread germs that can cause Lyme disease and Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Mice searching for sources of food can spread bacteria and disease. Mosquitoes breed in standing water and can transmit illnesses like West Nile virus and Zika virus. Cockroaches are drawn to water in the home and can leave behind allergens that trigger asthma attacks. Stinging insects attack in defense of their nests and send more than half a million people to the emergency room every year. Household pests are a threat to our health. Learn what you can do to protect your family at pestworld.org.
11: Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast,
1: the gold standard of paranormal radio. Before we go on, Neil's Story, I do want to give you my reaction to Bob Lazar. And that is, he's kind of what I call in my gray basket. And the reason is, is that there is a lot of dispute over whether his alleged educational credentials are real or not, and about other aspects of what he did and about his true role at Area 51. Now, the one thing that keeps me interested, though, is the fact that people like George Knapp, a respected broadcast journalist from Las Vegas, basically believes him or did last time I heard. We tried tried to get... Lazar on the power cast, and he is no longer doing interviews. In fact, I had one listener to the show offer money if Lazar would come on. But I don't think that was very appropriate. So I didn't make that offer. But if Lazar is listening and wants to come on. We'll accept it. Sure.
3: Yeah. I don't think Bob does it for money. I don't think he's ever made a big wedge of cash out of it, which like you, he, he is a gray basket personality, but I don't feel we can dismiss him entirely because I think the, the powers that be have done a pretty good job of dismissing him. But who knows? It it was the same thing with the lads from Rendlesham. You've heard of the Rendlesham incident in the UK.
1: Oh, many thousands of times.
3: That is going into my book, and I've been communicating with Chuck Holt. I mean, he, The man's a, a retired colonel in the United States Air Force. He, he's absolutely straight as a die, but he knows that his men were subjected to some sort of drugging afterwards, which can damage memories and kind of fudge what, what you actually saw. he knows for sure that something happened there that was truly unexplained
1: by the way in our may 26 2013 episode colonel charles halt was a guest for those who want to listen to him yeah so we got a chance to talk to him for a couple of hours on that episode we also featured leslie kane who was one of the people who co-authored that report in, in the new york times yeah about UAPs and about the investigations dating back to the 2017 story, and since then. So yeah, so we, we know about him. We've had John Burroughs on the show.
3: He 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 became a sergeant. I think John Burroughs was, was uh, he was just a private first class at the time, wasn't he, of the Rendlesham incident? Have you talked to Jim Peniston? No, because Jim's quite interesting. That he he was sergeant. He was sergeant. And he was on that first response with John Burroughs. And I think there was another serviceman with them too, a security, USAF security team. But Jim Penniston touched it. He's the man who, who touched the landed object, and he claims quite vehemently that he was given a binary code from the UFO. Yes, most, sure. Most we- strange. Most strange. By the way, on our
1: February 26, 2023 episode, we featured a researcher named George Wingfield from your part of the world. And his position is that the craft causing the Rendlesham encounters was a test aircraft. What's your perception?
3: Well, I have to say, I, not, at that time, maybe when we were not so familiar with the term drones. And I have to say, there is part of me that does wonder, was it an early drone? And what makes me wonder that is that it it lingered, according to some accounts, over the... There was a nuclear storage facility at, at the bent waters would be... Well, it's actually on, on the airbase. You know, this is a strike force that if some... If the balloon had gone up and there was some sort of major attack, that's where some of the nuclear weapons were kept to respond to that very quickly. And when you get an, a, a UFO or UAP that's shining some sort of red beam, but now we all know that red beam could even be some sort of infrared device onto the storage area, it might well be, that it was some form of drone rather than an experimental aircraft that's that's where that's where my money would be but you know there were a lot of very experienced personnel who saw that including colonel charles holt chuck a true gentleman these are highly trained personnel and i might like to add that charles holt was uh, one of the very sort of first missile operators you'll see you know, he was qualified in missile operation I think for around about the time of the, the Vietnam War so he he's got hands on I think they would have offered their suspicions about it being some form of drone or experimental aircraft when they were, they've they been doing their interviews over the years.
1: Well, of course, we had John Burroughs on the show a few times, and we all know he suffered injuries that he says were caused by the close encounter with this craft. And when I bring it up, I also think of an American case around the same time, the Cash Landrum episode, where people came in contact with the UFO and suffered very, very serious and lasting effects have you studied that one
3: no i'm not familiar with that one I, from over on the state side i've mostly focused on u k uh, sightings over the years what
2: what hash happened at
3: cashlandrum
2: sure. well, this was a case that happened i think um, like uh, it was either like the day before or the day after. Uh, the Rendlesham case, so it was a uh, uh, very oh. interesting, yeah, very interesting, uh, the, the the juxtaposition of, of, of time. But uh, this happened in Texas, and it involved uh, uh, two women and uh, the young son of one of the women, and uh, they were on a country road coming back from uh, – playing a bingo, in fact, when this uh, uh, they described it as a diamond-shaped UFO flew over the road, and it was brightly illuminated with um, uh, what appeared to be like a, 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 a flame-like exhaust coming out of the bottom of it. And it actually uh, hovered fairly low over the road. And they stopped to take a look at it, and they, the the heat was uh, uh, so intense coming out of it that uh, uh, both women actually suffered uh, uh, burns from this encounter. The little boy did it because he was frightened and stayed hunkered down in the back seat. In fact, the uh, the heat was so intense, uh, I, I remember seeing a picture of... The dashboard of this car that had the impression of somebody's hand had been embedded into this dashboard and it, it, it had been so hot uh, uh, but then the odd thing was is that suddenly the UFO was surrounded by a number of Chinook helicopters those are the big helicopters that have uh, uh, two rotors mm-hmm. on either right, end
15: actually. yeah
2: yeah, yeah, uh, and then uh, the the the, uh, the the craft increased altitude, and the Chinooks surrounded it, and it was like they were escorting it uh, uh, away. So uh, afterwards, uh, one of the women uh, actually uh, suffered from what appeared to be maybe um, radiation poisoning. Uh, uh, from uh, what, what would it be? It would have been like, I think they deduced that it was like a non ionizing uh, uh, type of, of radiation. You know, she had burns on her scalp, she lost her hair. Uh, I think that, uh, and you know, you'll have to remind me, Gene, if this is true or not, she actually uh, then developed uh, uh, cancer uh, uh,
1: late, later on. We'll have more about that and the ongoing UFO investigations from Neil Roberts' story and. Dracula. With Gene, Neil and Tim you're in The Pirate Cast.
9: You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
2: If you love mysteries, you'll love these two books by Tim R. Swartz and Sean Castile. In Mimics, The Others Among Us, you'll learn about the strange beings that can look like us but are not. In Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters, you'll see the hard evidence of UFOs that has been ignored or even hidden. These books will definitely blow your mind, and both are now available on Amazon.com.
10: This is Micah Hanks of the Grayling Report, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: I do recall a cancer diagnosis diagnosis also, and our friend and occasional guest co-host, Kurt Collins, who, by the way, has a guest editorial in the Paracast newsletter this week, that he has studied this case for years, and he's a really top-notch researcher. So he is the expert to call upon for cashlandra. Going on with Neil's study of UFOs, obviously we have the Rendlesham incident. What other key cases would you like to bring up?
3: Just as a little aside to the the burning of, of victims from some form of radiation, there are a few incidents like that in the UK. It's interesting that the triangular shape is repeated in a number of those incidents where people have been physically affected. But there's no mention of uh, a flame-like exhaust. And often they're not glowing, they're black. These are jet black, almost like a a void-like black triangular shape that people encounter they've even found and, and then then there may be a glow to it as well very very strange and there's a particular incident Todmorden, in yorkshire uh, the body of an elderly man who'd been in, he was a retired miner mr adamsky is found on a coal heap he has suffered burns they thought they were some form of acid burns to his head hair, hair loss and he, he was dead he was dead, and he was uh, very soon on the scene, was, was a local policeman, and the policeman had his own encounters where he suffered the, the heat contact with this black form that he encountered hovering over a road. This it's, it's shocking the parallels. And I think, you know, when you start plotting what was going on, on maps, there were lights seen along the east coast, coast of Great Britain, from as far away as Newcastle, which is on the English-Scotland border, or, you know, it's in Northumberland, the county borders with Scotland. There were lights seen there on the same night, and they were seen travelling down towards the eastern counties. They were spotted off Lincolnshire, and they were spotted across Norfolk on the night of the Rendlesham incident. Some people say it was it was meteorites, but uh, I don't know. But what I can do is talk about key incidents. and For me, uh, and it is intriguing, this, that I think the first 20th, major 20th century incident, and it's a significant one, took place in 1909. This was the year that Louis Blériot flew the English Channel for the very first time. Before that, nobody in any type of powered aircraft had flown over the Channel. So before Blerio makes his record-breaking flight, months before, a policeman is on duty on his beat, his usual beat, in Peterborough. And it's in the eastern counties, And just an ordinary... It was a big, big town in those days. And it's got lots of terraced streets. PC Kettle turns onto Cromwell Street. And he hears a noise. And he'd actually heard it just before he turned the corner. And he thought it sounded like a motor car. And as he turned the corner into Cromwell Street, he thought... Well, there's no car here. So he looked up. And sure enough, above him, several hundred feet long, you know, two, three hundred foot long, not longer. He saw a dark cigar shaped object. Now, this is the early hours of the morning. It's not quite sun up. It's not quite dawn, but there's some light in the sky he can see the shape there's a light at the end and it travels at quite some considerable speed over peterborough he watches it until it disappears he makes a note of it he then reports it to his sergeant his sergeant said well i didn't see anything but the constable has made the note of it he then uh, it gets out it gets out to the press has anybody else seen this strange object over the town, and indeed a few people did come forward and say, yes, we have seen it. But the story goes rather, vi- it goes viral, as we call in our modern parlance, but in those days it's picked up by various newspapers, and the story is repeated. And it's not long after that an official response is given. Now, this doesn't come from a named police officer. It, it's, it's some sort of amorphous Official response, which says PC kettle was mistaken and that what he saw in the sky was, in fact, a Chinese lantern with a a candle inside it attached to a kite. Now, why somebody would wish to fly a kite with a Chinese lantern attached to it that time of the morning, I don't know, but it killed the story. Interesting to note that in 1909 is the same year that the SIS, the Secret Intelligence Service,
2: was formed in
3: Great Britain.
2: <laughs> so now, were there uh, were there other sightings at around that time uh, over yes, the UK? Yeah. yeah.
3: Yes, they were through the May and into June of 1909, sightings, and they're, they're very, very similar craft. Now, the object sounds, in its description, like a zeppelin. But zeppelins didn't tend to have a light at the front, a beam looking out anywhere. It does no good for a zeppelin. In fact, they weren't known to carry searchlights. They had to drop illuminating parachutes. I'm published on the history of zeppelin air raids in the First World War. And when I was delving into the archives, Bundesarchives, archives in America and in the UK, extensive archives over a period of around about 20 years. I thought one day in one of these archives, in one of these books, there would be a member of German Zeppelin air crew who would reminisce that they had been over Britain before. The outbreak of the First World War. There is not one account, not one report, not one reminiscence, not one hint of it in any German newspaper that I've been able to find to date, and I I don't work in isolation. I have spoken to historians that have worked in the field of, of zeppelins, zeppelin air raids, and aviation history, some of them for 40 or 50 years. All of us have drawn a blank when it comes to zeppelins over Great Britain before the First World War. In fact, the first Zeppelin Air Raid officially was conducted, the, at least Zeppelin Zeppelin Air Raid, first one, 19th of January, 1915. That's quite a few years after 1909. It's also not thought that the German airships at that time, the Zeppelins, really had the capacity to make that kind of journey from Germany over to Great Britain on for example, reconnaissance flights. So what were people th- seeing? These are dark, cigar-shaped objects. They have a, a noise to them. Uh, whether it is an engine sound, or uh, they often describe it as a pulsating sound. It's They are witnessed by numerous people in towns, in villages, in country areas, often in the wee small hours of night. And if you think about it, they've got no sat-nav, so navigation is a nightmare anywhere. What were these people seeing? We don't know, but it was... Try- Again, there were often explanations offered. There was debunking. There were lots of stories of kites being flown at night or people telling fibs, people being unreliable witnesses. And one of the last sightings during this scare ships phenomena of 1909. It was in the latter part of June. It's July time. And they're seen over that Northumberland area. Now, Northumberland is on the border with Scotland and Great Britain. So it's away from the eastern counties. These are not people jumping on the bandwagon. These are people in a place called Tyne Dock. There's tram going up the street. It's full of people. They see the thing above.
1: Let's do our break here, Neil Story. And we'll get yeah. back with Gene Steinberg and Tim Swartz. And shortly, we will turn our attention to Count Dracula. No, I don't want to try to do that. You're in The podcast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
1: Hey, listeners. the plus to learn more about paracast plus
17: have you heard the warning from the dead doctors don't lie guy i'm talking about dr joel wallach he says if you have a four inch medical chart if you take prescription drugs for high cholesterol or high blood pressure arthritis joint pains or other health issues the medical profession is failing you they're using you for an ATM machine that's what he says He has a free lecture revealing what pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know. There's been groundbreaking research and discoveries on how to effectively treat or eliminate over 900 different diseases naturally. And it's all in his free lecture called Deadly Recipe. You want it free? Call him toll free at 855-79-YOUNG. You ready? 855-79-YOUNG. Dr. Joel Wallach. The Dead Doctors Don't Lie Guy says there's no reason why we shouldn't live to be at least a hundred and have a great time getting there.
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: You see, whenever we mention Dracula, we think of the pop culture reference that goes back to Bela Lugosi's presence in a stage show and, of course, the 1931 universal film Dracula, which, if you ever read the novel, you'd see it was really only superficially related to how the novel went. But that's another story. We're talking about UFOs right now, and Neil has obviously looked into the history of the sightings going back to the early 20th century. What about older stuff, the airships of the late 18th century or even things going back possibly to biblical times? What do you think?
3: Well, What I'd like to just finish first is, is the sighting over Tyne Dock. Sure. The object that was seen over there, Tyne Dock is an area that they were proposing to build an HM dockyard, His Majesty's Dockyard, a secure area. The stevedores that were led by a man who would later become the Lord Mayor of Sunderland. These are good people. They saw this thing, and the words they used to describe this huge object, they said it darted in the air. But Why I thought it was important to finish this story on this note, that it shone down a red beam that illuminated the area immediately beneath the object. And as you will know from the accounts of Rendlesham in 1980, it's a strange parallel. But what was shown down from above but a red beam. Dot, dot, dot.
2: <laughs> was anybody in Great Britain at that time flying zeppelins? Well, we had very small airships.
3: And this, they tried to say that, oh, there's an experimental airship being built on the Tyne. And, and what people saw was actually the experimental airship. But guess what? There is no record of any, uh, and they said it was for the ministry, so it's got to be hush-hush for the war ministry. No, there wasn't. There was no Zeppelin manufacturer on the Tyne in 1909. In fact, there had been no powered flight over the Tyne at that time. But don't forget, in Great Britain, there's something that's known as the D-notice or other similar agreements that were in existence from the 19th century. So if there is a public figure of power and influence and note with the right connections, these D-notices can be served. So it would mean that that person would not appear in the British press So, for example, when the Duke of Clarence, as an aside, a man who was accused many years later of being a suspect for Jack the Ripper, when the Duke of Clarence was caught in a homosexual brothel on Cleveland Street, his name did not appear in the British papers. On the continent, you can find him all over the press in France, but not in Britain so the influence has always been there that if they if the powers that be want to kill a story stone dead with a a
2: flippant excuse it
3: can be done
2: yeah i seem to remember that uh, the um in the i think it was the 1990s over uh, uh, over england the uh, the rash of of triangular shaped ufo's that uh, they were hushed up under a d notice
3: Absolutely right. Any sort of public panic, uh, they're they're going to want to to kill those stories dead. And that's one of the reasons why, in the early 20th century, that Winston Churchill, later our notable war leader through the darkest years of the second world war in great britain as a young politician from 1909 to 1911 he pushed for the air navigation act Hmm. now that might sound very dry but what that meant was if there was a foreign uh, aircraft or UFO or anything over Great Britain, although, of course, they didn't use the word UFO, but any flying object over Great Britain that does not have permission to be there, we have the right to shoot it down, because it would be considered a threat. So they they, they were creating laws to protect the skies from as uh, the Air Navigation Act, I believe, was 1911 when that was fully passed, but it all began back in 1909 now for the early sightings i am aware of the airship sightings over the american west in the 1890s and even the the story of one of these aircraft crashing a a possible spacecraft with an occupant who was actually buried in an in a cemetery
1: yeah but if you're talking about aurora texas yeah that's widely regarded as a hoax
3: Well, it doesn't surprise me, but it's a great story.
1: It sure is. is, But the other thing to bear in mind, Neil, is that it's possible a lot of the 1897 airship cases are made up stories also.
3: I think you're right. I think you're right. Do you know that we, we had I think somebody had seen it in the press and there's even a story in the UK of a very, sim- I mean really really similar, as if somebody's read it in the American press, they've concocted it, and said oh, it came down in Wimbledon Common in the 1890s there were even people who have hoaxed stuff uh, in the 1970s to try and uh, infer that landings took place in Great Britain, and I'm sure they said the same thing, uh, tried to start the same thing in America in the 19th century, and I think it's it's very sad that that happened because it muddies the waters. There, there are some fascinating stories. But the trouble was people didn't really didn't understand what they were seeing in the sky. You know, it, it, people many moons ago, you know, in, in industrial areas, they often didn't have very much of a reason to look up. And if you think of the fleeting glimpses that we have nowadays of UAPs, I think an awful lot of stuff was missed. But it was also explained in other ways i'm fascinated and i cannot prove or disprove what you see on some of these religious painting paintings that date back to the medieval period but some of the objects that are depicted in the sky alongside angels certainly look like uh, what we might consider uh, as being uh ufos
2: yeah there's even a um I think it's a Leonardo da Vinci painting of, uh, I think it was a Madonna and Child, where yes. uh, in the background, like far in the background, is a disc-shaped object in the sky, and there's even like a a, a a sheep herder on the ground looking up at it. I mean, and it's not it's not a predominant feature of the painting either. It's just kind of, uh, yeah, in the background.
3: I know the painting. I think it's the one where it's got some golden rays coming off of it. It too. Yes,
2: yes, that's the one.
3: Uh, and it looks on the painting almost like a bug that somebody squelched onto the canvas in the background. You know, it's not obtrusive, but what what is it? <laughs> what is that? Uh, and there are there are maybe there were lenticular clouds. That's where you can see today. I mean, they can be the most incredible cloud formations. And we've all got to be aware of that. But in my heart of hearts, do I think that UFOs were purely a 20th century phenomena? And uh, I don't think so. I think they've been around a very, very long while. Uh, in, in, In fact, you know, there were ancient alien theorists quite a while before Eric von Daniken. Uh, I think of W. Raymond Drake, who wrote the Spacemen or Gods books uh, in the 1960s. And he went into numerous g- cultural records around the world. And it took him a good good many years to uh, translate a number of these accounts. But it, it really does seem like we've been visited by something from above and some things from above for a very, very long time.
1: We'll go into more of that, ancient astronauts, and then we'll do Dracula. How about that, folks, okay? Neil Story, Gene Steinberg, Tim Swartz, you're in The Paracast. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience, so I'd like to tell you about After The Paracast.
18: dot com GCNfood.com.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: I should mention, of course, there was Brinsley Laporte Trench. Also wrote stories like this, wrote books like The Sky People talking about ancient astronauts and there was an american writer that you never heard of neil story i'm sure you never heard of him yona fortner
3: oh, say. tell me more
1: okay he wrote articles under the name y n ibn naharan wow. he was a jewish scholar and he talked about extraterrestrialism which was that the god of the old testament was et his theory it appeared in a small magazine called saucer news back in the 1950s i don't think anyone even understood what he was talking about because his writing was a little bit stiff and deep although he was a terrific writer but he was one of the early people to talk about ancient astronauts so neil do you think that et or something visited us way back when
3: well I've always been a great admirer of Arthur C. Clarke. And I, to paraphrase Arthur, he once said that when people see technology, when they witness technology way beyond their comprehension, it's magic or witchcraft. And I think that he was absolutely right. I think there have been sightings for all this. I mean, you look above, we say UFO, UAP, it would not surprise me if some people in the past looked up, they saw them, and these become heavenly creatures, heavenly beings. We can't really rule that up. Right? We look up for both.
1: What about the reports of abductions, where, where people say that E.T. captured them, took them aboard the spacecraft, things like that. What's your perception?
3: There are reports of abductions and disappearances throughout history. In one particular incident in 1942 on the northeast coast, I've used several examples from the northeast because I'm particularly, uh, I'm focusing on that area at this moment as I work through the Tyneside UFO Society archives that date from the 1970s and earlier. And there's one particular guy, he was a, a sentry on duty at a Royal Air Force radar base not far from Biggin. Radar was a secret of World War II, you know, and the orders were, as a sentry, if you were attacked by spies or people wishing to uh, overrun the base because it could have been a, a German raiding party, of course, you open fire, you defend it. But if you spot enemy vessels at sea or enemy aircraft, the orders were not to fire at them because they would travel very quickly along the coastline and they would look for where they were fired at and they would realise there were the gun emplacements or there were military personnel there. And on the next raid, that would become a target. So this poor old boy is guarding this Royal Air Force base. It's very late at night. It's a moon, moons in the sky, plenty of cloud. And he sees... What we would call a UFO in those days, there was no name for it. During the Second World War, there were sightings in the sky. Uh, their code name, uh, given to them by the members of the Royal Observer Corps in Great Britain, were Pheno, short for Aerial Phenomena, that couldn't be explained. Pheno. So, what on earth is this guy seeing? Is it a secret weapon coming towards him? Is it some sort of bomb? What could it be? But he spots it between the clouds, and before he knows it, this object is coming down towards him. Does the man pass out in fear and have a nightmare? What he says happened was the next thing he knew, as this thing bore down upon him, the next thing he was aware of, that he was collapsing to the ground. His rifle left his hand, and the next thing he knew, he was on board that spacecraft. And he's traveling at quite some speed over the sea. He is aware of beings around him. He couldn't really describe them. There's clearly some sort of window that he could see or a panel that he could see out of over the water. And it seemed that in no time at all that he was back on the floor a short distance from his rifle. Certainly the rifle hadn't, you know, maybe 10 foot from his rifle as if he'd been beamed back down can you imagine if you if it really is beyond your experience what that would do to you incredible he spoke about it in a little bit later life the, the story started to emerge in the 1950s you know he could have embroidered it given the great detail of the creatures that he saw or experienced but he didn't it was a simple story for which he wanted to find answers. I've interviewed a few people over the years who believe that they have been abducted. Some, I have to admit, I'm not entirely convinced. I I, I think they believe what they're saying, but what they truly experienced, I don't know, and I'm not medically qualified to explain what their state of mind, and who am I to judge. I'm a historian, and I respect people for their beliefs and So it's a tricky thing, but you and I, we all know that tragically around this world, thousands of people go missing every year. Many people turn up. Some people don't want to be found, but the police find them and they know that they can close that case. But what about those who simply disappear, literally disappear into thin air? Could they all be taken by serial killers and people wishing to do sinister things? Or could they be abducted?
1: We always think, though, when we talk about UFO abductions, that the person is taken aboard the craft, and after a short period of time, they are returned. Not that they are captured and they never show up again. And we can think here, and I don't know how many... Would reflect it, as some of you mentioned, some people may just not want to be found for whatever reason. I think there have been times in my life where I thought to myself, "Hey, I could just disappear somewhere, and that 's it, But then I need to go to Walmart to buy some paper towels, and it doesn 't work out so well." So for me, it wouldn 't work disappearing myself, but I could see where some people might want to do that. I could see where criminal acts are involved, things like that. I don't know in terms of what David Pilates, is. That's the name of the guy, right, Tim? Yes. Um, Where he's written about this, about strange disappearances, whether it has some other kind of explanation. There's also a theory that you've heard about, I'm sure, Neil, about multiverses. That some or all UFOs may come from another dimension, and people under certain circumstances might find themselves in another reality. And they have no way of getting
3: back. That might be fun. I think you're absolutely. It, it's possible, and you know, the more that science delves into this, the more the, these realms and dimensions and universe upon universe becomes more science fact than science fiction.
1: We'll be back with Neil, Jean, and Tim. You're in the Paracast. <laughs>
11: USA News Update. Leaders from Los Angeles and San Diego are assuring residents that their cities are prepared for Hurricane Hillary.
6: We're not waiting for the storm to hit. We have already begun working
1: 24-7 to be ahead of the curve and to be ready as soon as the storm reaches our shores.
11: Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass. Hillary expected to make landfall as a tropical storm Sunday night or early Monday morning. Former President Trump is reportedly planning to skip the upcoming Republican debate and instead will be interviewed by Tucker Carlson. The debate, hosted by the Republican National Committee, will air Wednesday on Fox News. The number of stabbings and slashings is surging across New York City, and experts are blaming left-wing reforms for the increase. NYPD data shows a 26% increase in the number of blade attacks citywide since 2019. A retired NYPD sergeant blames the spike on legislation signed by then-Governor Andrew Cuomo. John Schaefer, USA News.
20: American funding now and see how much cash out you can get. Call 800-721-2477. 800-721-2477. 800-721-2477. That's 800-721-2477. NMLS 6606. www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. This is not an offer or commitment to lend. Subject to borrower and property qualifications. Not all borrowers will qualify. Terms and conditions apply. Equal housing opportunity.
7: All right, crew, let's get her dug.
1: Honey, you want to give me a hand? I'm planting that tree, remember?
7: No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project so you can avoid hitting our essential buried utilities. This includes natural gas and petroleum pipelines, electric, communication cables, and water and sewer lines. So before you do this, or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance.
20: Hi, my name is Richard
10: Dolan. You're listening to the Paracast. So
1: long and short, Neil Story, you don't dismiss the possibility of a multiverse out there that may be at least one of the explanations for UFOs and possibly even strange disappearances.
3: I think it would be foolish to dismiss it out of hand. Do you think we'll ever have an answer? I think we'll get close to an answer. And I feel that as time goes on, there's always been this concern this pattern that if it is revealed that there are extraterrestrials interacting or visiting interacting with people or, or in some way with, with the world or they are visiting this world i mean to be honest i think it would be rather arrogant of us as a race to think that we could be the only people in these, in all the universes of the world, and the only people who could devise space travel or interdimensional travel, I think it would be a very arrogant thing to think that we could be the only ones.
1: So, do you think, therefore, that in and of itself, the odds favour that UFOs are extraterrestrial, at least some of them?
3: Well, that book is very much open. I mean, we we, we talked about dear old Lord Lord Clancarty Brinsley, he was very much of the opinion that there was something under the water, under the oceans of this land. There are powerful arguments, very compelling arguments, that it could be some form of interdimensional travel, or it could be my mind, because I'm not a scientist, I'm a historian. My mind is open to the possibilities, the... The minute we shut our minds to possibilities and wonders is when we shut our minds to invention and moving forward in our learning and our experience as a race.
1: It'd be nice if there's E.T. out there because things are such a mess right here. We could use the right.
3: It's a seductive escape. You know, people love fiction. They love films to escape in. So... Yeah, I mean it's a lovely idea and I don't think it is a completely unreasonable and out of out of the the realms of possibility. And would I like to meet somebody from uh, another planet? Well, yes I would. As long as they come in peace. <laughs> But that was the old 1950s thing. Anything from that's from alien to this country is going to come along with a death ray and destroy us. Uh, I think a lot of good was done with close encounters. And E.T., why not? Why not? Why can't people travel these multi-universe in peace and peaceful contact? It, it's, it's rather a naive view, in some people's opinion, maybe. But as far as I'm concerned, give them a chance. Say hello. (laughs) I'd be fascinated. Absolutely fascinated.
1: It would be fun if it really happened. It really would. I think so. I'd love to travel to another planet, but I think I'd prefer the Stargate. I mean, it's 10 seconds. How can you beat that?
3: Well, that's true. I like that idea. Just make sure that your office desk is not too close to the stargate and you know you start chucking rubbish through it because you'll get in trouble with the other side. Interdimensional littering is a crime. Just remember that.
1: Let us move to another subject. We can talk about UFOs (laughs) forever. Alright? Let's go to folklore. Let's go to one of the most famous books of the last couple of hundred years maybe. And that is dracula by bram stoker what got you interested in writing a biography of bram stoker
3: did you know that book first published dracula first published in 1897 and when he was friends with he knew many of the great authors of his day did our bram but bram stoker's book has never been out of publication since 1897 And where some of those that were household names in Stoker's day, they've faded. They've gone. This remarkable book, this this legacy that Bram Stoker leaves us, I I think it has given us the modern horror film. We may have had a few Frankensteins, but without a Dracula, without the reanimated, uh, the living dead, we wouldn't have... ...zombies as we see them today... ...I don't think so anyway... I, ...we certainly wouldn't have... ...the Twilight vampires... ...we wouldn't have Blade... ...it all began... ...with that one powerful... ...superbly written book... ...Dracula... ...a book that in its day... ...was set in a modern world... ...of technology... ...in, in, in 1897... ...a typewriter was new... ...there were typewriters in the book... There's travel across continents, fantastic excitement. There's phonographs being used for recording diaries like Dr. Seward. And it's not written in just one voice. It uses the old Wilkie Collins style of using journals and diaries and letters to create the narrative. So it's seductive. I I didn't encounter the book Dracula until I was in my teenage years, and I deliberately sought it out. But I've known Bram Stoker's most <laughs> infamous, horrible, nefarious character, for, I would think, the best part of 50 years for most of my life. Because when I was a, a, a kid just starting school, you know, age five, six years old, my route to school, holding my mum or grandparents' hands, went past the cinema. And there were posters displaying the latest shows going up. And it was the golden age. I grew up in the 1970s. It's golden age of Hammer. Hammer Horror starring Christopher Lee as Dracula. This snarling, terrifying face in, in Victorian clothes in this cape. The fangs dripping blood. My goodness, read I mean, that was frightening enough. I I, went, I, I was too young. They were what they used to call X certificate films. I was too young to even go and see them, but I could go into the local newsagent and I could buy some tops bubble gum, which came this sort of dusty kind of chewing gum or bubble gum stuff, with three cards. Shock theatre. I believe they had them in the Ameri- in, in America too, and they had full-colour stills from films like Dracula AD 1972, all they had silly jokes on them, and they were quite lurid, lots of blood and fangs and gore. In fact, they were so frightening, I had to give them to my mum to take them away because they were causing me nightmares. So that legacy stayed with me, and as I got older and got braver, I wanted to know Who was this monster that frightened me? And who created him?
1: Well, of course, my first encounter with Dracula was when the Bela Lugosi film from 1931 came on TV. But in general, it was a very superficial presentation of the story. It wasn't listening to narratives from different participants in the story It was one film one presentation and much shorter than the original and as a matter of fact also didn't have the blood and gore because people in 1931 couldn't stand it i read that people fainted anyway when yeah. dracula tried to drink someone's
3: blood it's true i i think Bela lugosi I don't think he ever had fangs.
1: No, he did not. But there was a scene where it looked like the suggestion.
3: Oh, yes. Uh, I, most certainly. The right. They didn't do the real
1: fangs. They made the suggestion of what he was doing, not portray it. Neil Story, right. Tim Swartz, Gene Steinberg. The subject is Dracula. You're in The podcast.
6: If we've learned anything from recent news, it's that unexpected things are happening. Your gut tells you there's something very wrong going on, and all the evidence suggests that there is. Government emails are hacked. There's talk of how to fight World War III, and trade of grains and food are being disrupted. Those in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better. It's time to invest in self-reliance and emergency food storage now more than ever. My Patriot Supply, the nation's largest emergency preparedness company, is the place you can trust. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contains tasty breakfasts, lunch, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Get at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save 25%, plus get free shipping on all their three-month emergency food kits. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com today. It's time to prepare for what's coming. MyPatriotSupply.com
9: Attention, your withdrawal has been denied by the U.S. government.
10: Picture a world where your every purchase is monitored, tracked, and controlled by those in power to suppress the freedoms of those they see fit hi my name is Jason Hansen I'm a former CIA officer and New York Times best-selling author and right now I have become very focused on the impending rollout of the central bank digital currency this is not a work of fiction it's a terrifying reality looming on the horizon but there is a bit of good news I've partnered with Advantage Gold to offer you a solution they are specialists in converting your traditional assets like those inside an IRA or 401k, into tangible assets such as physical gold and silver. Don't allow your money to be controlled. Claim your free gold protection kit from Advantage Gold. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Call 800-900-8000.
4: yours free at mysolarbackup.com.
10: Hi, this is James Fox,
0: director of the phenomenon and moment of contact. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: Now, there have been a number of Dracula films. You mentioned the one, of course, with Christopher Lee. an Incredible actor, but also an incredible storyteller. I used to hear him go on TV shows, and he'd just go on. You say, say something, and he would do 20 minutes for you. A lot of fun to listen to. From James Bond villain to Dracula and many other monsters, he was terrific. Lugosi became famous from Dracula appeared in a few more films, and then his career went downhill from there, always doing B-style movies, as if maybe he accepted anything. His career did not fly as high as Boris Karloff. The other thing, of course, is he did play Dracula one more time in a film from the late 40s, Abbott and Costello made Frankenstein. (laughs) And he was really good there. This is before he starred losing a lot of weight because of his illness. He was addicted to painkillers because of a back problem. Very, very sad. His career ended doing some low-budget films for Ed Wood. But what do you think, in reading the book and looking at the culture of Dracula defined by Lugosi, any resemblance at all?
3: That's a very, very interesting thought uh, uh, to ponder it's interesting that, you know, that there was the Murnau film Nosferatu. It was clearly based on the Dracula story. And Bram had died in 1912, but his wife <laughs> was still around. And she was the woman that, that took them to court. Flory, uh, uh, and she actually demanded that all copies of Nosferatu be destroyed, which is why we only had ro- ropey copies and bits and pieces for years and years and years. But well, that was that was quite loyal. The Lugosi version actually comes from the stage play, really, and that's where they discovered Lugosi for the role in an American performance of the stage play of, of Dracula so it comes from original the original adaptation and in fact the play came first in 1897 for copyright reasons bram stoker staged uh, it was more or less a reading rather than a full performance but a, a, a reading of dracula on the stage of the lyceum theater in london in the west end of london where he was acting manager so there is the legacy there, but I think Lugosi, he gave us an, an image that, that it had always been lingering around a bit for Dracula since the early stage plays, which, which is this idea of the evening suit and the cape, which also taps into the iconic image of Jack the Ripper. You get the Drac and Jack question, you see. So Lugosi brought that to screen like never, ever before. And he nailed it with the accent, the mystique. Because, you know, he didn't know many people f- that spoke like that on film at that time. Certainly not with their combination of the, the ruins, the caverns, the dark places where he existed and inhabited. And it's intriguing that Florence Stoker was still alive when the first showings of the Lugosi Dracula were made in Great Britain. It is recorded in the newspapers that she attended the the showings, some of the you know the screenings in the UK. Maybe somebody didn't think to ask her. Nobody asked her, or at least I haven't found to date, any record of what she thought of the performance.
2: What was Stoker's interest in the subject to make him write the book to begin with? I mean, I know that uh, he had uh, other supernatural paranormal-related stories, but why Dracula? What was the genesis of its creation?
3: Bram Stoker, although he had on the Stoker line ancestry back, actually to Northumberland again, to the town of Morpeth, back, that was way back in the 17th century, and the family went over to Ireland. And they married into some very long-standing Irish families over there. And so Bram was a little boy. And I believe the origins of Dracula can be traced that far back because Bram could not walk until he was seven years old. And so he was from quite a large family, but the nurse would have to sit and you know entertain him. Family members would have to entertain him. And I dare say he heard some wonderful folk tales. So there are tales of bloodsuckers and succubus and incubus in Irish folklore. It's almost certain he was exposed to them from quite an early age. And you will see from Bram's writing, he was writing from the time he was at university, really. He he wanted to be a journalist, I think, really. He had to find work as a civil servant. But he, he was a theatre critic, so it, he got free entrance into the theatres. And he wrote stories, short stories, like The Chain of Destiny, when you have three crones come across a bed to the, the hero of the story in a country house. Not three beautiful women. They transformed in the Dracula story. So you can find the elements of the Dracula story in his earlier works. The mind control fascinated uh, Bram Stoker. Folklore, language, places, travel. Although Bram never went to Transylvania, he read extensively about it. He used Baedeker guides, he used travel guides to get all of the transport lights, maps to create his story. But what he wanted to do, he idolised his boss. His boss was the man who became Sir Henry Irving, the first British actor to be knighted. You see, before that time, acting was not seen as a noble profession. But the Lyceum Theatre, under the light, Irving had the license. Henry Harry Loveday, he was the man that helped coordinate all the wonderful special effects of the productions. And Bram really made everything else happen. The acting manager looking after the actors, sorting out the tours, all the correspondents. And he worked himself. He was always in a mortal hurry. And he idolized Irving, and he wanted to write a play. He saw Irving playing Macbeth. He saw Irving playing Faust. Well, in, in fact, uh, he, in, in Faust, uh, Irving played Mephistopheles, this demonic creature that seemed to hold control over all creatures and of the night. Oh, yeah. Irving himself is the original genesis for Dracula, but Bram, and you can learn this very, you can see it from his notes, drew on a number of different people, including Richard Burton, the explorer, not the actor. He was the, a great orientalist was was Burton. He'd also written about, uh, it was called Vikram and the vampire, Hindu vampire stories, fascinating translations, but Burton was hard as steel, his eyes, oh! And if you think of of Dracula with the pointed eyebrows and the lion, steely face. That's very, very much from Burton. And then you add in Alfred Lord Tennyson, the poet laureate, the man who wrote Charge of the Light Brigade. He wrote plays for Irving. And Bram became a friend through his work at the theatre, and he noted that Tennyson had a way of showing his canine tooth when he was mulling over his displeasure at somebody. So that's another factor that gets drawn in. But the face that you can compare to the only illustration approved by Bram Stoker for the cover of the paperback edition of Dracula, it shows Dracula scaling down the wall of Dracula Castle. He's got white crew-cut cut cut of hair, a a sort of, moustache and it, his hair and moustache is white and his face is bit, quite angular and you can see and you can see from his notes that bram stoker drew quite heavily on henry morton stanley the explorer for the features of dracula indeed bram said that that morton stanley had a face of a man more dead than alive
1: it's interesting to see which actors have played Dracula over the years. I kind of like the portrayal of John Carradine. He had that gaunt look you think would be appropriate. Of course, then there was Gary Oldman, who can play anything, even Commissioner Gordon in those Batman movies. We'll talk about that and the accuracy or lack thereof of theatrical presentations of Dracula with neil gene and tim you're in the barragast
9: thank you for listening to gcn visit GCNLive.com today
2: do you love reading about the mysteries of the universe do you wonder what secrets are hidden in the shadows of our own planet If so, you won't want to miss these two amazing books by Tim R. Swartz and Sean Castile. In Mimics, the Others Among Us, you'll explore the world of the mimics of man, beings that can look like us but are not. They've been among us since the beginning of history, hiding in plain sight, influencing our culture in ways we can scarcely imagine. In Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters, you'll discover the so-called hard evidence of UFOs, that's been available for study this entire time, but for the most part, has been ignored. These two books will open your eyes to a hidden reality that has been right in front of our eyes all along. That's Mimics, The Others Among Us, and Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters, by Tim R. Schwartz and Sean Castile, available now on Amazon.com.
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of Paranormal Radio. And
1: now, here's Gene Steinberg. Al Neil, I understand with the play, they had to simplify it. Because you couldn't have elaborate sets and presentations of different diaries and papers to reflect the different characters and their meetups with Dracula and their interactions. I could see where that happened. And that's why it was rather a static presentation for Lugosi Dracula. But over the years, there have been other attempts to create movies of this character. Did any of them come close to the real book?
3: The best adaptation was produced by the, the BBC in the UK in the 1970s and they actually used locations such as Whitby, that Bram Stoker was known, you know, that's where the Dimitri came ashore, and in reality, when Bram went there, the wreck was still there, so that that became the Demeter. Bram found the name Dracula in Whitby in, in Wilkinson's Guide to Wallachia. It's embroiled in, in the story, it's intrinsic to the story, so they used Whitby as one of the locations. Louis Jordan he has the look of an aristocratic European, of course he, he's got that wonderful persona, so I think he did very well in that and, and I think the, the performances all around him were quite remarkable Frank Langella, I, I think you know, it's a very 70s <laughs> view of it, but I quite liked his, his portrayal of, of Dracula. When we look at Gary Oldman, I can't fault Gary Oldman as an actor. He is extraordinary. And as a story, the film that is entitled Bram Stoker's Dracula, it's a great film, but Bram Stoker's Dracula, it ain't. It, it has all of the wonder. It's t- it takes it to the next stage, but it's not a faithful account of the book i feel in some ways it's a shame it was an an opportunity that was lost that you could tell the original story really well and then maybe have a a prequel which would have made the second film a prequel involving a lot of the the stories that were told in the the Stoker dracula film
1: well the one thing i remember is that his face kept changing gary oldman
3: yes yes and and that's and that's right when they meet dracula for the first time he's not as oldman appears he's not as christopher lee appears he was in bram stoker's book an old man i believe there's a i think it's a spanish or italian film that comes very close to it which did feature christopher lee and he's seen there with this kind of droopy mustache and white hair. And they encounter an old man in Castle Dracula. And it is quite right that as the story goes on and, and Dracula feasts on more and more blood, he becomes more powerful. And, of course, he becomes younger and younger.
2: Yeah, that film would have been uh, Count Dracula, and it was directed by Jess Franco.
3: Ah, oh, that's the one. That's the one, and I believe that that is the one. That, and thank you for that, Tim. Uh, it's the one that Christopher Lee liked most of all. He said that's the nearest to the, and he he swore that he would never play Dracula again unless the stories were more authentic to the, the Bram Stoker story. Which is why, when they you know they created the Lord of the Rings film that Lee was so keen to be part of that because of their authenticity to the original books.
1: Now the various legends of the vampire, during the day he has to reside in a coffin with his native soil. They can shape shift into a bat or a wolf. That if he bites somebody and they die, they awaken and become vampires. These legends were they part of the original
3: book? They they are it, 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 because he Dracula is seen climbing down the side of castle Dracula and and he is in in this bat form. Yes, if you are bitten by uh, by Dracula, you too uh, as Lucy found out would become reanimated as a vampire, the undead and all of these stories these these are stories that are drawn from the nosferatu but we must not confuse nosferatu as a word meaning simply a vampire nosferatu actually means creatures of the night So all sorts of creatures of the night, be they werewolves or ghouls or the walking dead or vampires, are all, they're all embodied in Dracula. There were numerous books, Sabine Baring Gould's Book of Werewolves, I mean, Bram Stoker was meticulous in his notes, his notes still exist, the books he borrowed, uh, for reference exists, his library when it was sold uh, in London after his death, that exists, so we can track down a lot of his influences, but one, there's two that shouldn't be forgotten. Firstly, Arminius Vanbury, who introduced Bram to the the stories of uh, Transylvanian, Central European legends, and he gave him the word Vampire. It would be pronounced vampire, but it's spelt with a W, W A M P Y R or I R. It's got that lovely continental ring to it. Bram loved it. Oh, we like that. So at, at one point, the book was going to actually be called Count Vampire or Vampire and the Undead, and that's great. And and Stoker even refers to our friend Arminius at at Budapest University in the book. Bram gave great credit to Arminius Vanbury. But it was only when Bram was on his little sojourn in Whitby that he had a little trip down to one of the local lending libraries, and he was having a little bit of of furble around, and he found Wilkinson's Guide to Wallachia. Now, he's not done extensive uh, study into Vlad Tepes or anything like that. In fact, there's no mention of the name Vlad Tepes in Bram's notes. What Bram has done has looked at Wilkinson's Guide to Wallachia and Transylvania, and he's discovered a reference. The reference is in the notes for Dracula. It is a reference to a Voivode, a, a type of mercenary soldier. And actually, in the Wilkinson account, he's not a desperately good one. The name of that Voivode was Dracula. And that changed everything for Bram. Bram didn't go into extensive research. He Bram never even set f- foot in Transylvania. Sorry, folks. Sorry, Romanian tourist board. You know, all of your castles that supposedly are Dracula castles in Bram's context. Bram didn't know all of that. He didn't know all of that detail. Dracula is not Vlad Terpesh. Dracula is a name from Wilkinson's Guide to Wallachia. And then, from that moment on, Bram changed the title. Right, gone is Count Vampyr, and we've got Dracula and the Undead. And in fact, that was the original title of the stage play. It's on the posters. But when it came down to the book, Bram took a gamble. And the gamble was... To, write a book which hasn't even got a name that you would recognise. It's not, you know, like a sing a single name of a girl, for example, that might imply a romance story or something like that. Or a powerful man. It's not. It's the book. Not Dracula and the Undead. It comes out as Dracula. And in fact, can you imagine how Dr- Bram felt? You roll that word around your mouth. It's got an edge to it. If you see just that name on the spine of a... Book was published. It was yellow, the hardback version. It came in a white slip dust wrapper, but the hardback book is yellow with red writing. Before
1: Dracula. we go on with describing Dracula, we have Neil, Jean, Tim. You're in the Perigast. <laughs>
8: The complete website is shopsupertea.com or call us at 818-984-6100 Monday through Saturday 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-984-6100, ShopsuperT.com.
16: We depend on our drinking water supply daily, but where does that water come from? Your water provider encourages you to get to know your local water source so together we can protect and preserve it. The investments we make as a community to protect our water source now ensure we have a sustainable drinking water supply for the future. Visit DrinkTap.org to learn more. This message is brought to you by the American Water Works Association and your local water provider.
20: Extend your life with extended. Your-
10: everyone around me seems to get sick but me. My brother got the flu twice, my mother was down with some sort of fever, people at work were taking sick days off and others were just plain tired and run down. And me? Well, I just keep feeling great all the time with Extendivite. My grandfather used to talk about the power of garlic and other herbs he took that kept him healthy. I'm lucky. Extendivite was just what I needed to keep me healthy and Extendivite is all natural. Extendivite was designed for the heart, but does so much more by keeping me healthy all the time. I'll take Extendivite forever. Get your two-month supply for only $69.95 plus shipping and handling. My name is Rick, and you can be like me, just by calling 1-877-928-8822 or visit heartdrop.com. Extend
20: your life with Extendova.
11: This is me, the Merciless.
3: You are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of
10: paranormal radio, exactly according to my plan.
1: Sounds like somebody went to a lot of effort and probably money to put this book together.
3: Well, Bram spent a lot of years writing Dracula. It was originally for his lord and master, Sir Henry Irving. You know, this was to be a stage play from Bram to the man he idolised. But by 1897, Irving had more or less worked Bram to death. You know, it it wore the man out. And even Bram's family, Bram called his son Noel. He called him Irving. That was his original first name. But by that time, young Noel just wanted to be known as Noel because the family had had enough of Irving leeching the the father away, that he wanted to know and love. Bram was undoubtedly a man who loved his family, he loved being social, but I think Noel felt very much that he borrowed his father, rather than had a full-time dad. It was tricky. It was tricky. So there's a lot of Bram's own lifeblood in that book. But... Before we move on from Arminius Vanbury and all of this wonderful creation, we mustn't forget that a woman was also responsible for most of the folklore in Bram's book. And her name was Emily Gerard. And we should pay our respects to her because she was, and I emphasize she, was a Victorian explorer. Now, Transylvania is on the far-flung map of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In fact, it even hangs over the edge of some of the maps. She travelled that country. It's dangerous. There's bandits in parts of that country. Yes, it's got a railway system, but up at the Carpathian Mountains and it's dangerous, and she travelled it, she travelled it, got to know the locals, and she accurately recorded a lot of their folklore and superstitions, and it was published in a in an article in a, a very good, it's an mostly an academic and literary journal called the 19th century, and Bram used to write for the 19th century, and of course he read the 19th century, and that is where he saw Emily Gerard's Transylvanian superstitions article. It was abs- an absolute game changer in his creation of the Dracula story.
1: So, what's different about the real Transylvania to the one depicted in
3: Dracula? The difference is that in the real Transylvania today, they quite rightly talk of Vlad Tepesh and, and Vlad Tepesh's castles. And they, they name them, they find them. Yes, that's, that's fine. But they keep calling them Castle Dracula, knowing that the world is going to think, ah, that's Count Dracula's castle. You know, oh, yes, Count Dracula. Oh, he really put people on spikes. So Vlad the Impaler. And in fact, even some of that is depicted in the Bram Stoker Dracula film. But in the book, it's not there. Dracula is just a name. So all of this, the two have merged. But that said, I'm sure if Bram had had the time and money to travel to Transylvania, he would have loved to have soaked it up. But the Transylvania, Bram knew, was drawn entirely from travel guides and it is travel from maps and talking to people who had actually been there. So it has that air of authenticity but at no time did Bram's foot set foot on Transylvanian
2: soil. Well, I was just going to ask, the style that Dracula was written in, you know, a series of, of letters and journals, uh, was that a popular style when the book was written? Because I know to a lot of modern readers, it is... It's lacking, so to speak, and, and I know that it's made making movies based uh, off of that novel uh, difficult as well.
3: Yes, it, it, was, it was different, and, and it, it was different because it had been pioneered, really, by Wilkie Collins in The Woman in White. And so, Bram loved to write in the voices of various people in his books, So it was very much in Bram's style. It was the cutting-edge style of the day. The Wilkie Collins woman in white, very, very popular, had been made into a successful stage show, you know. But we have to be honest, Bram Stoker's book, that yellow book, that Dracula, was not a mega-success in its day. It sold well, But when Bram died in 1912, remember it's published in 1897, when he died in 1912, the obituaries spoke beautifully of of his various books, his fiction books, but it was said that he would be best remembered for his two-volume biography of Sir Henry Irving. And really the the rest of the stories were left to go to the four winds but dracula the book just seemed to endure
1: now and just it, to point this out to people a little bit of background information the book i guess in its original edition it says here had 418 pages which is a pretty big book okay it's a sprawling novel yeah, yeah. whereas the movie based on the play, the one with Bella Lugosi, was an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. So it's like taking 50 pages of the book.
3: You're, you're absolutely right. And w- when you see Bram Stoker's original script for the play, oh, it's got crossings out and tearings out and pastings in and all sorts to make it fit. It was really tricky to get it to fit. But fit fit it did. It was, it was I think... If we really, it is, it is, in my view, a masterpiece, Dracula. It is a masterpiece of gothic horror, in the same way that you, you can mark the, the, the 19th century gothic horror, beginning with Frankenstein, with Mary Shelley, and really it, it ends and continues and, and grows and develops, but from 1897 with Dracula. They are the two marks of the 19th century.
1: So in 1897 we have Dracula yeah. and we have airships.
3: Yes, in America. <laughs> yes, very true. Very true. And Dracula was
1: one of the pilots of the airships. No, that's not true. I just made that up.
3: <laughs> well, I'm sure that uh, Bram would have liked that thought. <laughs>
1: So you mentioned here, of course, that the book did well, but wasn't a super, super bestseller during his lifetime. It wasn't what he was recognized for. When did Dracula begin to become the cultural phenomenon? Was that with the play?
3: It was It was Universal Pictures. It was, they picked up on the play. Uh, they lo- they like Bella Lugosi. And they saw the potential of it. Uh, in, in many ways, as we look back on Dracula, if you read it now, it, it's got so many great ideas and themes. So if, if modern sensibilities want to say, well, the book is not an easy read, and if I'm really honest, I think for a lot of people it isn't easy.
1: We're going to well, make this easy for you. That we have some announcements coming up. Neil, Tim and Jean, you're in the Pericast. <laughs>
9: are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. As Dr. Wallach says,
16: we all have nutrient deficiencies in our diets and must supplement with 90 essential nutrients in proper balances. At no cost or obligation, get a personal certified holistic health coach to help you develop a supplement program Based on Dr. Wallach's recommendations, call Linda at 833-VITAL-90. That number to call is 833-848-2590. That's 833-VITAL-90.
13: Hi, this is Dr. Joel Wallach, the mineral doctor. You've heard me talk about 90 for life for years. 60 minerals, 16 vitamins, 12 amino acids, 2 fatty acids. You may not know this, that I've actually designed Arthur decks for animals. That's right. <laughs> Your pets need 90 for Life, too. Get this essential pet product by calling 877-279-9422. That's 877-279-9422. Again, 877-279-9422.
18: update in the headlines this sunday the first tropical storm since 1939 hitting southern california right now governor gavin newsom issuing a state of emergency
1: please listen to
12: emergency personnel local officials take seriously debris flows and floods flash floods lightning possibility of tornadoes stay safe
18: word the 39th president of the united states jimmy carter is apparently in the final chapter of his life correspondent brad siegel reports
19: those were the words of former president jimmy carter's grand. On Saturday, the Carter Center announced in February that the 98-year-old former president was being placed in around-the-clock hospice care after a series of short hospital stays. Carter became known for his work with Habitat for Humanity for many years after his presidency. He was still teaching Sunday school until four years ago. Apart from grandson Josh Carter's sentiments, there were no details provided about the former
6: president's condition.
18: And I'm Laura Winters, USA News. If we've
6: learned anything from recent news, it's that unexpected things are happening. Your gut tells you there's something very wrong going on, and all the evidence suggests that there is. Government emails are hacked, there's talk of how to fight World War III, and trade of grains and food are being disrupted. Those in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. It's time to invest in self-reliance and emergency food storage now, more than ever. My Patriot Supply, the nation's largest emergency preparedness company, is the place you can trust. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contains tasty breakfasts, lunch, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Get at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save 25%, plus get free shipping on all their three-month emergency food kits. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com today. It's time to prepare for what's coming. MyPatriotSupply.com.
11: hi this is bryce abel i'm the producer of dark skies the co-author of ad after disclosure and you are listening to the paracast the gold standard
1: of paranormal radio now i read dracula well i don't know 60 years ago something like that and it wasn't necessarily a difficult read it was a long read because it was a big sprawling novel
3: Yes, absolutely. Sir Christopher Frayling, a wonderful man. Perceptor of the Royal College of Arts. He's the man who coined the phrase spaghetti westerns. And he looks upon Dracula. And we have talked about this, the two of us. It's a tale of frontiers. It's a big story. In many ways, you can see it uh, in almost terms of the big sort of Sergio Leone westerns that it covers a huge splay across Europe. I I think of it as a a book of many ideas, many themes. It's gripped me. I've I've read it many times. I've revisited it over the years. And every time there's a new theme that you can see in it. And, And it's not always necessarily what Bram intended. It just gets your mind thinking about the possibilities, the ifs, the buts, the maybes. What a book. What
1: would surprise us about Bram Stoker?
3: Oh, oh, well, number one, that he couldn't walk until he was seven years old. And, and he went on to become a tall, muscular, very, very good rugby player, athlete and sportsman. So that's one thing. He, t- he metamorphosed into this sort of, big, strong, titan of a man with the smile of Machiavelli and the paw of Hercules. You know, wonderful. Never lost his Irish accent. He was a a forceful dancer on the ballroom floor. He was described as something as a force of nature (laughs) if you got in his way uh, in, in one of the dancing galas. So don't forget, he's not always a serious man. He was a man of ebullience, of wit, He loved good food, and he had stories that he could tell for any occasion without resorting to vulgarity. But what would surprise you might be his connections. Now He knew many people. Bram Stoker had a great fascination with Abraham Lincoln and the American Civil War. And, of course, you will know that, tragically, Abraham Lincoln was shot in force theatre by John Wilkes Booth. Well, John Wilkes Booth's brother was also an actor. And in fact, he was quite a good one, very well regarded on the American stage. And so Bram kind of engineered Booth and Irving to share the stage in London. And that was quite something. And I'm sure that that part of that is to get closer to the Lincoln story. Bram admired Walt Whitman and his Leaves of Grass story, which also he got to know Walt Whitman. Whitman had a great interest in Lincoln. And when Whitman died, he left his memorabilia, his Lincoln memorabilia and research to Bram Stoker. And in fact, the plaster cast of Abraham Lincoln's face and hands that were made in Abraham's lifetime. They wanted something more permanent, some preservation of these objects. And so Bram Stoker was one of those instrumental in getting them cast into bronze for perpetuity. And Bram even spoke publicly, and he lectured on the story of Abraham Lincoln. So that that's another side that many people don't realize. But what might intrigue people most of all were some of his closest friends. His closest friend really was Sir Thomas Henry Hall Kane. Now, Hall Kane is, he, he was, his granny was Manx, and Manx for little boy is Tommy Beg. And so the dedication to Dracula is to, my dear friend, Tommy Beg. And people for many years didn't realize who that was. They thought, is it some Eastern potentate? Is it an anagram? But all along, it was Bram Stoker's dedication to his best friend. And indeed, Hall Cain dedicated books to Bram Stoker before Dracula. So there's it's a great friendship. I discovered a huge amount of correspondence between the two on the Isle of Man, where Hall Cain bought Grieber Castle. But amongst that correspondence are also letters to Hall Cain as a young man from a gentleman it is believed he was very close to, dare I say, even having a, a homosexual relationship with a man called Francis Tumblety. And Francis Tumblety is Britain's special branch, number one suspect for Jack the Ripper. And I think that's a very intriguing combination there. Now, in 1888, when the Ripper crimes were taking place, Tumblety was also known to have been in London. Tumblety was also known to have been embroiled in the lincoln conspiracy probably not genuinely but he likes to embroil himself in intrigues and make himself a lot more interesting He was a very bitter man but he's very flamboyant as well at times very strange character so the question is it's the the one million dollar question did they ever meet well we don't know there's no proof of it but it Tumblety is certainly the sort of man that would have been invited to the beef steak room to dine after visiting the Lyceum Theatre. He's got a connection to Lincoln. He's a friend of Hall Cain. I think they met. I think they met. And I think Hall Cain, having been so intimately close to Francis Tumblety, he would have some very strong suspicions of his own about him being... Uh, the the notorious killer, Jack the Ripper.
1: Did they ever solve the Jack the Ripper mystery?
3: No, they didn't. It's the greatest unsold series of murders in the history of crime. In many ways, he's the first really prominent and identifiable serial killer. The FBI, in fact as part of their training, uh, examined the case forensically. uh, John Douglas, Robert Ressler, and a team there set that up as as a case to investigate. And although there are some prime suspects, Francis Tumblety really does look. When the man kept women's uterus preserved in jars to show people, to explain how vile he thought women were, he was in London at all the right times and my good friend Michael Hawley has done what we've all been trying to do for a lot of years and he's really worked hard. I always knew it would take an American researcher to nail this because Tumbleteeth he was arrested on bail for a lewd act in London and he fled and he fled to the USA and Michael Hawley and other researchers in America have traced Tumblety travelling around the country. In the day before, you didn't have an awful lot of interstate communication, but now you, you can, and now you can see the newspapers. And wherever Tumblety went, a trail of blood followed him because wherever he went, there were murders. You work out where his office was, in, and he'd be, set himself up in offices. He was a backstreet abortionist. He sold this pimple banisher stuff. He was also, he had medical knowledge, and wherever he went, murder, he went hand in hand with it. Most mysterious character, and a highly likely suspect for Jack the Ripper. And it's interesting that Bram Stoker, in his books, loved to include allusions to friends, and he has five boxes, five supposed victims of Jack the Ripper, Five boxes have come on earth, one of which is deposited on Chicksand Street in the east end of London in the heart of Jack the Ripper territory. We'll
1: Uh-oh. talk about more of this in our next segment with Neil and Tim and Jean. Jack the Ripper.
2: You're in the podcast. <laughs>
1: Once again, theParacast.plus. Prices are just dollar fifty a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about.
19: That's 800-509-4492. Advertising is simple. It starts with someone who has a need. Mom! And then gets more specific.
2: Mom, I want pizza.
19: Then we add urgency.
2: I want pizza tonight.
19: Before you know it, your GCN Advertising message is reaching millions of listeners. Listeners who are definitely in need.
2: We
6: want pizza!
19: You see? Advertising on GCN is simple. Your message meets their need, and the result means new business for you. Tell us about your business, then let our super creative department go to work to craft just the right message to feed those who have an urgent need.
11: We want pizza tonight!
19: GCN has the most affordable national radio advertising rates, period. And millions of people listen to GCN radio programs on over 1,000 AM and FM and XM stations and streaming audio live. Get started today with GCN, the Genesis Communications Network. Just shoot us an email, advertise at GCNlive.com.
18: I had no idea it would destroy my life. But before it happened, I had a successful business in Austin, Texas. Everyone laughed at me when I shut that business down, but I could not ignore the wake-up call.
2: Hi, it's Grant Cameron from presidentialufo.com. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal
11: radio.
1: So, folks, Neil's going to be hanging with us for the After the Paracast Premium Podcast. Check theparacast.plus for more info. In the meantime, we've moved from Dracula to Jack the Ripper, being the Dracula being a fictional character, but Jack the Ripper Being a real character, committing murders never solved, also a pop culture kind of phenomenon. How does that happen where somebody who kills people becomes part of our pop culture?
3: It was in many ways a perfect storm that in 1888 were more and more newspapers that were available to more and more people. In Great Britain, we'd had an education act in the 1870s that meant more people had gone to school and more people can read. So it meant that these sort of what they used to call chapbooks, cheaply produced books that would come out with these lurid stories and illustrations. Street literature was very, very popular. Ballads of such crimes. And of course, this, this was horrible. These were genuinely horrible crimes. In 1888, Britain was at the zenith of its empire days. Queen Victoria is on the throne. This is the greatest empire on earth, in inverted commas. But it's also an empire where there is biting poverty, not just on the streets of the far-flung corners of the empire, but right on our doorstep, and not in some far-flung industrial city or rural area. This is in the heart of London, in the East End, where people are reduced to rags and biting poverty and living in squalor and dirt and disease. This is the underbelly of society. And out of that society, there were uh, many women who, and this is why Jack the Ripper was so terrifying, they were reduced to having to sell their bodies. It could be that they'd maybe taken to drink, maybe there have been issues in their life. They've, and they've ended up on the streets. And The only way to avoid being on the street for that night is to earn a few coppers so you can afford a Doss house. You know? It could happen to any one of those women. That's why it was terrible. They, were, they Most of them were not full-time prostitutes. These are just women that occur, occasionally turned to prostitution to earn some money. It was so frightening for all of them. So you've got this climate of fear. You've got this underbelly that the Victorians love to hide away, to brush away but it's being exposed by the coverage of these murders and then add on top of that that the murders get more and more horrible people start to worry about the attacks taking place elsewhere in the country letters are being sent to the news agencies taunting them and the illustrated police news it's iconic These pictures capture the scenes of the murder so dramatically. In in fact, the reportage was said to be so terrifying, one woman was frightened to death by it. That's in the newspapers. You know, that's that's High Street newspapers, so frightened that she's read about it, and Jack's going to come and get her. It was a real climate of fear in illustration, in word, and in word of mouth. And out of that came this pop culture figure and and I think it's often down to the name he was given because originally he's known as the Whitechapel murderer the Whitechapel fiend even some reports describe him as the Whitechapel vampire and we know for certain that Bram Stoker saw those reports but it's the letter that's sent to the central news agency that warns about. I'm going to. I'm down on prostitutes. I'm going to cut their ears off just for jolly. It's, it's a horrible letter. It's in red ink. But it's the name at the end of it. It's the everyman character, Jack the Ripper. It embodied it all. It encapsulated the fear. And it was an everyman character, because it could be anybody. You know, you've heard the phrase, everyman jack of them. You'd have Jolly Jack Tars. You, you had Springheel Jack, the Terror of London. Jack was the everyman. Jack the Ripper could be anybody and anywhere. That was how he became a, a dark icon of 19th century Britain, a true bogeyman.
1: Right, but I gather from what you're telling us here, after all these decades, we will never, ever truly solve that mystery.
3: I think you're absolutely right, Jeannie. It it ain't going to happen in a court of law. But, I mean, Jack's gone. You know, he's gone. What objects were associated with those crimes, truly associated, although some may claim to have a shawl or this or that or the other. They've all gone. They've all gone. I think the shawl's been pretty much debunked. What DNA conclusive proof could we have? I just don't think we can. Even, we can ever find that. But, here's an interesting point. If you put together all of the evidence against Francis Tumblety, all the evidence that we've assembled now, and you took him to a court of law in 1888 with all of that evidence I think he would have been sentenced, found guilty, for being Jack the Ripper.
2: The thing about Jack the Ripper is that, at the time, there were mass murderers, but they didn't get the attention that old Jack did. Why do you think that is? I mean, was it, was it because in those days, Days the yellow journalists, the you know the, the popular papers at the time, were really reaching their heyday, and they just ran with it and captured the uh, public's attention with that one story. I don't think we'd ever seen in Great Britain, in the
3: popular conscience, on or, or police knowledge, a murderer quite like this. You can find one-offs that really are quite vicious and horrible but for a series of murders that keep getting worse and worse this is the first one to really hit the headlines and i think that's well evinced by the fact that the murder scene of mary kelly is one of the first murder scenes ever to be photographed in british police history
1: so was the right place at the wrong time
3: I, I think it's, it was the perfect storm. Uh, We've never knowingly seen anything quite like it as a serial murderer in Great Britain, certainly not within the popular conscience. Who knows what sort of monsters existed before, when they could cross over county areas, when there was next to no policing. There would have been horrors, no doubt. But in the modern world, we had never seen anything, at least in Britain, like Jack the Ripper.
1: Neil Roberts' story. Tell our listeners if they want to know more about the things you do. Where do they check you out?
3: Have a look on the website of Pen & Sword Books UK. We've got some American officers as as well. There'll be an American release of my new book. Bram Stoker, The Man Who, who Wrote Dracula an illustrated biography due for publication next month.
1: When is your UFO book coming out?
3: UFOs Over the UK is due for publication next year.
1: You can find us as the Paracast on Twitter, or X, excuse me, on X, it sounds like a file, uh, on Threads, on Facebook. I'm losing track of all these places. We also offer branded merchandise for Paracast listeners at the Paracast.shop. That's the Paracast.shop. You have four different logos to choose from, and then t shirts and other gear and wear and all sorts of merch you want to check out. We also offer a streaming service, the Paracast Plus. Check the Paracast.plus for more information. With the Paracast Plus, we give you this show. Free of the network ads with better quality audio. We also give you the After the Paracast podcast with extended uncensored discussions, and Neil will be back for that one. For more information, check out the Plus. use the coupon code UFO20, UFO20, and get yourself a 20% discount on five year and lifetime subscriptions for the Paracast Plus at the Neil Roberts Story, glad to meet you. Thank you for joining us on The
3: Paracast. Thank you, Gene. It's been a pleasure.
0: The Paracast, featuring Gene Steinberg, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated.